going to be the book of John again. This time, John 13. You want to go ahead and turn there. So we continue our series on Jesus at the table. Have you noticed how many of these stories of Jesus having a meal with someone, how many of them involve feet? It's like every, every single story, there's feet involved somehow. Um, it invariably ends up being a story about, I don't understand it entirely, but uh, I kind of think I get it. It's, it's fascinating because in that day and time, they, of course, walked everywhere in these open sandals. Uh, their feet were tired and sore and dirty on a regular basis. Uh, it's the reason that they had wash basins and foot washing uh, as part of their just culture. It's just part of what happened on a regular basis. Uh, it was so common that they continuously show up in all of these stories. Uh, in fact, they show up all through Scripture. Uh, as far back as Genesis 18, uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Remember the three men sort of walk up to Abraham as he's taking shade under the oaks of Mamre. And Abraham's first response was to offer them water for their feet. In verse 4 of Genesis 18, Abraham said, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. This was the world at that time. But it isn't really ours. And for the most part, we cover our feet in public. And even when we wear sandals or open footwear of various sorts, we don't walk across deserts for miles and miles in them, uh, except for those folks who wear chacos and they're a whole other breed. Um, but we don't live like the people in the ancient Near East lived. We don't have wash basins near the doors of our homes where people remove their footwear and wash their feet before eating barefoot at our dinner table. That's just not something we do. Uh, so in a sense, it's, it's kind of difficult for us to really identify with this whole food and feet thing. But for them, it was a daily reality. Now, I do, however, remember one time when I had a similar experience and I meant to bring a couple of pictures, and I completely forgot. Uh, but our family and some friends had gone down to the Santa Elena Canyon, down the park, uh, and we were going to baptize Bailey in the Rio Grande. And uh, Terlingua Creek had apparently, you know, it feeds into uh, the Rio right there at the canyon. It had apparently had some rain at some point before we got there, uh, but it wasn't running anymore. There was just sort of like pools here and there and a lot of mud. Right? As y'all know, to follow the trail into the canyon, you have to cross that creek. But it was extremely muddy, and it really looked kind of impassable. And so I did what any normal person would do in that circumstance, and I tried to cross it. <laughs> uh, now, like I said, I meant to bring a couple of pictures, but I can describe it to you. As I went over, now, it wasn't quicksand, but it was deep mud. And I was in mud up to my knees, just, I mean, solid. I'll show you, anybody who wants to see the pictures, I've got them on my phone, I'll show you all later. But, um, I mean, solid mud up to my, I almost lost my shoes, I had to take 
my shoes off. Uh, the, the very sandals actually that Jackson wore on his rafting trip this last night. Uh, but I had to take those off and walk barefoot to get out of the mess. Um, and so I, I finally make it back over to the thing. We had packed a picnic lunch to have right there at the Santa Elena Canyon because it's beautiful. If you've ever been there, it's magnificent. And so we packed this picnic lunch. We were all going to enjoy this meal together after baby was baptized. But before I could share in the meal, I had to remove my sandals and I had to wash my feet. Now, Jesus and the disciples weren't walking in knee-high mud on a regular basis. It was not, that's really not the world that, that they inhabited too much. I mean, they probably could have. There was rivers around. I'm sure that they got muddy at some point or another. Um, but their feet would have, like I said, been tired and sore and dirty from the day's work or from walking from one place to another. Anywhere they went, they walked. And, uh, most of them didn't have horses. That was, that was a, a sort of a wealthy, noble thing to have horses to ride. Um, and so they walked and they got dirty. And as we dig into the text this morning, that would have kind of been the backdrop of everything we're about to see happen here. Uh, sort of the unspoken context of the scene. Okay, so follow along with me as we read. We're going to begin in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel so that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you ought also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. May God bless the reading of his word. So to set the stage a bit, this took place after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the people heralded him with palm branches 
signifying victory. See, when a king or military leader would liberate people from some other oppressive ruler, the people would welcome him into the city or town by waving palm branches and laying them on the ground before him. And this had just happened with Jesus. And then he and the disciples gathered in the upper room of a home and prepared to share the feast of Passover. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 13. And in verses 1 and 3, John peeled back the curtain a bit and revealed Jesus' motivation for what unfolded in this part of the story. In verse 1, he mentioned Jesus having knowledge of what was about to happen and of his deep, abiding love for his disciples. In verse 3, he focused on Jesus' knowledge of the Father, specifically that the Father had given all things into his hands and that his origin and destiny were with God. This is the motivation that John offered for what happened next. As if John was saying that because Jesus knew the Father's plans, and because he deeply loved his disciples, he washed their feet. And if we simplify that a bit more, we discover that knowing and loving God and each other leads to servanthood. And I say servanthood on purpose. And some people might be tempted to call what Jesus did an act of service. But there's a big difference, I think, between servanthood and service. For example, someone who offers a service can kind of be picky about who they offer it to. They can put restrictions and or limits on who they will serve, and, and they can make decisions about their acts of service based on their own preferences. We've all seen the signs on different doors that say, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, right? But a servant doesn't have those options. We use the term servant because it's more palatable to our sensibilities, but to be a servant in that day and time meant that you were a slave. And slaves didn't get a lot of choices concerning who they would serve. But this was all right in line with what Jesus had taught all along. In Matthew 20, 27, he said that whoever would be first among you must be your slave. In Romans 6, 15 through 23, Paul kind of explained that we were once slaves to sin, but have become slaves to God and righteousness. And in 1 Peter 2, 16, the apostle wrote that we are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. All this to say that service is different than servitude. And in this case, Jesus was demonstrating servanthood for his disciples. And that brings up some questions. And the most obvious one is, are we servants of God who live obedient lives and follow the example Jesus set for us by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or, are we merely performing acts of service at our convenience? Picking and choosing who we will serve and under what circumstances we will serve them. We might be tempted to think that we are good servants and slide past this question, but if we take a moment and really allow the Spirit to search our hearts, we may find that there is work to be done in this area. That who we like to think we are and who we really are in practice don't always line up. That we tend to lean toward convenience and comfort because that is the culture that we have grown up in. 
And of course, we believe in God. Many of us have for most of our lives. But believing in God is one thing, and being slaves of God is another thing entirely. I fear that in our lifetimes, the church has been shaped more by the culture than by the spirit. And that as a result, we tend to look more like the culture than we do like Jesus. Or worse, we have reshaped Jesus to our liking, to our comfort and convenience. We have remodeled him into a Savior that suits us. A Savior who wants us to have all the things that we want for ourselves and won't ever challenge us beyond what we are comfortable doing. A Savior who allows us to decide who we will help and under what circumstances instead of compelling us to be a servant of all. But that's not Jesus. In a parallel of what Matthew recorded, Mark 9.35 reveals that Jesus said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Is this who we are? Is it who we really are? At our core, deep inside, are we slaves of God who live to serve the Lord and others? Or are we part-time volunteers in the kingdom? Because if we're like Jesus, if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to shape us and mold us into his likeness, then our knowledge of God and our love for others will lead us to a life of servanthood. And that servanthood will define us in a way that points directly to Jesus. If this isn't what is happening, then we need to take a serious look at who we are and what we think it means to be a Christian. Tucked away in the middle of John's uh, revealing description of Jesus' motivation, we also find that there was more going on at this meal. According to what he wrote, the enemy was at work trying to sabotage Jesus by tempting Judas to betray him. And this is important for multiple reasons. First and foremost, it was the means by which Jesus would end up being arrested and then crucified. A plan that would backfire spectacularly when Jesus defeated death in the grave by rising on Sunday morning. But aside from this, it also shows us that the way the enemy tries to lure us away as well. We are not immune to temptation. None of us have reached perfection and plateaued. Whether we realize it or not, we face the same temptation Judas faced to betray our Lord and Savior for personal gain. To make Jesus into what we think he should be and then move ahead with our plan as if that will work out in the end. But it never does, does it? We might be okay for a bit, but ultimately we will find ourselves struggling with regret, just as Judas did. And we can't overcome this on our own. The only way to beat this is to lean into the way of Jesus, the way that leads directly to servanthood. We see this unfold with Jesus as we move into the next several verses. First, he laid aside his outer garment clothing that represented his role and his position as a rabbi and a free man. He set it aside. In its place, he took on the position and role of a servant. 
a slave. He armed himself with water and a towel, and he went about the task of a slave as he proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. All of them. This included Peter, who was about to deny him three times. It included the others who would scatter and leave Jesus to face everything he was about to face on his own. And it would include Judas, the one he knew was about to betray him. Jesus didn't pick and choose which disciples he would serve in this way. He didn't restrict those who would deny him or abandon him. He didn't restrict the one whose actions would lead directly to his torture and death. And this should challenge us, I think, in how we interact with each other and then the rest of the world. Because what Jesus did here wasn't a restricted service available only to those who measure up or look and think like we do. It wasn't limited to the people we consider good or deserving. Jesus washed the feet of the man whose kiss would become a cat of nine tails, ripping into his back and tearing at him with every lash. The man whose betrayal would lead to a cross. The man least deserving of his love if we were going to measure things that way. But that's not Jesus. He didn't withhold his servanthood for the deserving. For the one the ones who proved that they were worthy of it by being grateful enough. He washed them all. Jesus washed them all. Now we know that this had different effects on different ones. We know that Peter repented of his denial and rejoined the group eventually. We also know that Judas gave in to his regret and took his own life as a result. But Jesus washed their feet regardless. Because his servanthood is an offer. An offer to join him at the table and to experience the goodness of his love and his mercy and his grace. An offer to receive his forgiveness that is available to all. But if we're going to follow him, our lives must look like his. If they are going to look like his, we're going to have to be willing to be servants. As slaves of God, we are going to have to be willing to be servants of all. So what does that look like? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure of the specific details in each person's life. But what is clear is that it will be evident in each person's life in some way. Now maybe there's a person living near you who needs your servanthood. As someone who, I don't know, can't mow their own lawn for some reason, and you can go do that for them. Or maybe you have a neighbor that you can't stand, and you need to help them in some way. To lay down the animosity that you have held toward them and be a servant to them. Maybe you have held a grudge against someone for the way they've treated you, and you need to forgive them and invite them over for supper. I'm not asking you to literally wash anyone's feet because that's not really a thing in our culture. But there are still plenty of ways to be servants to others. You just have to look for them. 
And so while I can't and won't tell each of you how this specifically plays out in your life, I can say that if you are following Jesus, it most certainly will. Because when the Holy Spirit is given the space to work in our lives, we are invariably going to look more and more like Jesus. Even if that means serving those who have something against us. In verses 6 through 11, John described the Lord's interaction with Peter as he came to wash his feet. And at first, Peter questioned Jesus. It could be that he was confused about what was happening. Uh, or maybe he was in disbelief. Maybe he thought Jesus was going about things all wrong. Whatever the reason, Peter questioned Jesus. And Jesus answered him because, as we've seen before, it's not wrong to ask questions. Jesus regularly interacted with people who were asking him questions. And he didn't act like no one ever had a right to question him. Because questions are part of how we learn and grow. They're part of how we process things. And this is how we were created. To be inquisitive. To wonder. To be curious. To use the minds that we have been given. Think about this. Jesus wanted us to come to him as children, right? In Mark 10, 15, he said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, one of the things children do all the time is ask questions, right? They're always asking about things about what this is, or how that works, or why things are this way or that way. Asking questions is a good thing, because ultimately it leads us to our Creator. So there's nothing wrong with Peter asking this question. There's nothing wrong with us asking questions of God either. Whatever our honest questions might be, however simple or complicated they might be. But after Jesus answered Peter's question, Peter responded by rejecting what Jesus wanted to do. What he clearly didn't realize is that Jesus was offering him grace in that moment. And I think we make this mistake too. We question God about things in our life things we don't understand. What is going on? How will I ever make it through this? Or why is this happening? And then when God makes the answer clear to us, we reject it. We decide that we know a better way to do things and we push ahead following our own plan. When we do that, we miss the grace that God is offering us. In essence, we tell Jesus that he will never wash our feet. And notice how emphatic Peter was when he said that, you shall never wash my feet. It's basically no different than him saying, I'm never letting you do that for me. I'm never accepting your grace. I think we read this and we miss just how crazy it is that Peter would reject what Jesus was doing here. But Peter lived in a specific time and culture. 
They had a specific way of doing things. They had their traditions, and they had their list of, we've never done it that way before, and they, all these things, they had them just like we do. Peter had a certain way of thinking, and he had expectations for how things would work, for what a rabbi would and wouldn't do, for what his own role should or shouldn't be. He had fixed in his mind who Jesus would be based on all these things instead of just simply letting Jesus be Jesus. We do the same thing. And it's idolatry for us just like it was for him. But look at how Jesus responded. You can almost hear the kind compassion in his voice as he tried to encourage Peter. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Kind of like a patient father explaining to his child how things work. Okay, this goes here. Turn it that way. Okay, come on, let's go. Stay with me. I think a lot of us are like Peter. We live in a specific time and culture and we have all these traditions and ways of doing things and expectations for what it will look like. We have it all fixed in our minds and we are in danger of missing the grace that Jesus is offering us. And I don't just mean the grace that leads to salvation, although that's certainly a big part of it. I'm talking about the grace Jesus offers us on a daily basis. The grace that challenges us and changes us and makes us more like Him. The grace that allows us to experience the forgiveness that we have been offered to be saved, but also to experience the joy of that salvation every day. Even when things get crazy and we have complicated questions. Jesus addressed this in the next part after clarifying that Peter needed to allow the foot washing in order to be a part of what Jesus was doing in the world, Peter asked to be washed from head to toe, basically. And Jesus made it clear that once a person has been bathed, they don't need another bath, they just need to wash their feet. And this might seem confusing at first glance, but I think if we think about what Jesus was referring to, like what he was really getting at, it starts to make sense. See, the bath is like salvation. The foot washing is like confession. We don't need to go get rebaptized and resaved every time we get a little dirt on our feet. We just need to confess. This was a real world way for Jesus to remind them about the need for confession. As was his way, Jesus tied the deep things of the faith to simple daily practices so they would be easy to remember. His body and blood would be tied to bread and wine, something they would have access to all the time. And in this case, foot washing would be tied to confession, which means we need to be in the habit of confessing, of having our feet washed by Jesus. As we read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In James 5.16, we read that each of us should confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
Which means that just like foot washing was a regular part of what they were doing, confession should be a regular part of what we are doing. To God and to each other. It doesn't mean we have to confess everything we do to everyone. It's not what we're saying here. It simply means that when we mess up, we need to own it. We need to confess to the Lord, and then we need to confess and apologize to whoever we sinned against. Because this is the way. The way Jesus set before us in this simple conversation with Peter and the disciples, be a servant to all and confess when you aren't. These are the basics of living the Christian life in the way Jesus set before us at the table. Because he knew the way of God the Father and he loved his disciples enough to show them that way. And through this he shows us the way as well. It may not mean washing feet, but it certainly means servanthood. So will we devote ourselves to knowing the Father and loving each other? Will we devote ourselves to being servants? Slaves of God, to confessing when we fall short, and to receiving the grace that Jesus offers at this table. Because as we look through these events to what happened next, we find a cross, and then an empty tomb. These are the way of Jesus servanthood, sacrifice, and joy. And in that order. And like each of the disciples, we have to go through all the difficulties that this life throws at us. But we are able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit through the grace Jesus offers when we come to the table and meet him there. We pray.